entertaining and informative. James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snerdly, is on the air. 77 WABC. W. ABC Talk Radio 77 in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, uh, for the past few weeks, we have been focused a lot on matters of gender, uh, especially since the bill in Florida, the the parental notification bill, was signed into law and followed very quickly by Alabama deciding that they were going to uh, put a stop to what is called gender-affirming medical services for minors. And there have been several other states acting as well. I read an article in the Washington Post by a woman, Corinna Cohn, a software developer from Indianapolis. She's currently an officer in the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network. And I asked if she would join us. She is here now. Corinna, welcome. I appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you, James. I'm glad to be here. Now, your article starts off, you say when you were 19, you had surgery for sex reassignment, or what is now called gender affirmation surgery. You say the callow, young man who was obsessed with transitioning to womanhood, could not have imagined reaching middle age. You're middle age now. What is it that you want to share with people, not just in the Washington Post, but people in general that want to hear about your story? I think one of the things to understand is that When you're a teenager, even if you are above the legal age of majority, which is 18 most places, you are still undergoing a lot of adolescent identity formation. And just because you're legally able to do something doesn't mean that you necessarily have the maturity to be making really radical choices. I I think that's probably the most salient thing that I wanted to share. Well, tell us what happened with you. You made those choices at 19. First of all, for I don't, you know, as much as I've read about this, I don't know some real key things about gender reassignment. Is it a painful process? How long does the process take? And when you decided to do it, I mean, you decided to do it uh, some years ago, many years ago, before it is as popular as it is popular in quotes. Now, was it easy to find doctors to help you? Tell us a little bit about what happened with you. The way that I was able to find my doctors, that's my endocrinologist who prescribed the hormone replacement therapy, and my surgeon. That was through a network of other trans people that I learned about on the Internet when I was still in high school. And... It was still pretty underground at that point. There was no Google. There's no search engine. So it was mostly word of mouth to learn about anybody who was accepting any patients for these types of uh, procedures. Was it painful? Was it painful? The surgery was painful. Yeah, it it took a while to recover from. And I, I think that's probably consistent with most surgeries. But it took probably about a year before... It was uh, healed up to the point where there wasn't any more um, healing that needed to be done. 
All right, you're closer to 50 now. What's your life like? Are you sorry you did it? Are you glad you did it? What has life been life, uh, life like for you in those intervening years? Well, some context to add to my decision is that at the age that I was really set on wanting to transition, it was we weren't even at the peak yet of the AIDS crisis. And I had a lot of fear about having um, any any sort of illness that would kill me <laughs> mm-hmm. because that's that's uh, unfortunately that was what was my context as a teenager is that um, AIDS was unfortunately killing a lot of people. And I know it's hard for teenagers today to understand just how severe that was, but that was really the environment that was present when I was that age. And as a matter of fact, a number of the gay friends that I had at that time did end up contracting HIV. And I feel like there's a a good likelihood that if I had not transitioned or if I had not had those types of anxieties about having um, intercourse with the other uh, same same sex um, at the time, that it's likely I would have had HIV also. So I don't see that regret is really the um, the go-to word for me because I can definitely see that given how my peers' lives progressed, that there were other risks that I likely uh, may have um, encountered. So I don't know regret's the best word, but I can definitely see that if I were alive at today at the age of 19 and that things like uh, HIV were mitigated against with things like PrEP, that maybe if I had had a little bit more time to explore who I was, that I wouldn't have gone to medicine or surgery in order to try to achieve my, my sense of being, if that makes any sort of sense. Yeah. You say as a teenager, you were repelled by the thought of having biological children. Uh, but in your vision of the adult future, you imagined marrying a man, adopting a child. Years later, you said you were surprised by the pangs you felt as some of your friends and your younger sister started families of their own. That sounds like it was a difficult period for you. It was. And I think if I'm going to say so, uh, if or if I can say so, I think it's actually uh, difficult and confusing for most people. Um, I don't think most people as teenagers really conceive themselves as becoming parents and it's good that they they don't right you should be learning about the world and figuring out about your identity Um, as it happens i thought that i was alone in that and i thought that there was something that was strange or different about me and it, it just didn't occur to me that the things that i was going through were more typical to just being a teenager and so I, I tried to find a way to uh, make myself feel better, to ameliorate the sense of isolation and alienation that I felt. And it's just something that's common for teenagers, and I didn't really understand that at the time. You also say, and I want to read a, a paragraph that you I mean, I think your article was profound. I think for people that really want kind of a, a, a look at a perspective that 
is different. I, 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 your article blew my mind. It was profound. It is profound. You said surgery unshackled me from my body's urges, but the destruction of my gonads introduced a different type of bondage. From the day of my surgery, I became a medical patient and will remain one for the rest of my life. Can you explain that? Yes. Your body naturally produces the, if, if you're a healthy person, your body naturally produces the hormones that it needs and it regulates them according to what your needs are. But because I, as, as part of the surgery, can't produce the normal levels of hormones that I need anymore, I must have some form of external um, medication for my hormones. And because that's all regulated by my schedule, like consciously choosing when to um, take my medicine, I don't have, my body doesn't naturally regulate its own hormones at all. And so if, if, I'm, uh, if I need more, I don't get it. If I'm having too much, um, I can't really dial back. And that is, that is not the healthiest way for your body to handle its endocrine system. Now, you look at, see, you, 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 like all of us, are watching the news, and you're seeing more and more cases where these children, not even teenagers, are being given these, what they call the gender affirmation treatments. They're starting these puberty blockers even before they're in puberty, obviously, and they are beginning to transition as children, not even teenagers in some cases. You've been through this. What, what do you think about that? And what would you say to the parents of those children and to the children based on your own experience? Well, I want to emphasize that I really started my transition when I was 18, and so it's a little bit harder for me to provide a perspective on a child who's transitioning at nine. But what I can say is that for the first 10 or so years after I transitioned, I felt like I had made a really good choice. I was a lot more open and a lot more social, and it was easier for me to, for the sort of personality that I have, it was easier for me to interact with people if they perceived me as being a member of the opposite sex. But by the time that I hit my 30s and now I'm in my 40s, it really started to create a lot of cognitive dissonance for me of moving through the world in a way that was at conflict with what my natal sex is. And one of the things that I worry about when I see these children who are being transitioned is that even though if they have puberty blockers, even though they won't develop the secondary sex characteristics that will make them as recognizable as members of their natal sex, they will still nevertheless always be the sex that they were born as. And I think as it, when they're in puberty, as they're going through adolescence, as they have supportive family members around them, as their social um, uh, networks, social support systems around them, are very affirming of their identity. I think that they'll feel okay. And as they start to get past adolescence and start getting that period of their life where they're uh, really working on trying to um, understand their place in the world and, and see themselves as, as more adults, that they're going to be trying to understand what happened to them. And, and my biggest fear is that for a lot of these individuals who are transitioned uh, 
especially uh, prepubescently, that they're going to reach adulthood and they're going to ask, why did this happen to me? Like, why am I so different from other people? And why, why did my parents choose this for me? And it's not going to be all of the kids who feel this way, but I know that some of them are going to feel completely disconnected and uh, that they, they won't feel like they would have had any agency in the decision to have them transition. And I, I really worry that that's going to create a lot of angst for them. Um, I, I hope that there's people who are anticipating those needs, um, even, if it's, even if it's a minority of them. I know that there are going to be individuals who, for whom it's going to be very difficult to understand why they were transitioned as children. Corinna, I usually start these discussions when I've talked about this by saying, I completely understand that <clears throat> this dysphoria is a real thing. And I think most people can understand that if you get older and you, you're not in the prime shape that you were when you're younger, some of us look at our bodies and we're like, what the hell happened to me? And we don't like what we see. And we don't like certain aspects necessarily of the aging process. So I can't imagine someone not liking their bodies when they're young and say, okay, I don't have to be like this, though. But as you point out, I think that this is a decision, there should be a lot more to this decision than today, that this is a decision that's going to affect the rest of your life, and people should not make the decision to do this in a very narrow context. Would you, am I, am I reading you right here? You have to really understand the risk of making the choice. And when I see that some of the providers out there are working on a model that you could describe as informed consent, which if, if I can tell you, do you if, if, can I explain what informed consent is briefly? Yes, in, yes, in briefly, yes, please. So what it means is that if you wanted to go into a provider and say, um, I, I think I'd rather have testosterone. I think I want to transition and, and become a boy or become a man. Then the provider would hand you a sheet of paper that explains on the paper what the risks are and would ask you to sign it. And if you signed it, then the provider would prescribe you the hormone. So depending on how uh, careful that provider is, they might walk through all of the risks and ask you, do you understand them? Or they might just hand you the paper and say, uh, sign this and fill this out before we can give you anything. But really what informed consent is supposed to be, and this is even consistent with the standards of care that are supposed to be applied for trans medicine. Um, informed consent means that the provider, whoever is providing the, the medication or whoever is doing the surgery, has, that person has to really understand and believe that their patient understands the risks, that they've talked about it, and that the patient understands what they're getting into. It can't just be a perfunctory signature on a piece of paper. But I fear, based on the stories that I've heard from uh, friends who have gone to some of these clinics and uh, some of whom have desisted, that there's not really a, a good vetting process to make sure that people who are getting uh, these surgeries or, or having uh, hormones, that they're going in with a very clear understanding 
of what the risk is and that um, that there's not really any sort of qualification to know that these procedures are the things that are going to necessarily provide benefit for the person seeking them. Corinna, our time is up, but thank you. I, you have a lot of courage, and, and I salute your courage and your clarity of thought, and you're speaking out about your own experiences. I don't know what it took to do it, but it must have taken a lot. And so, and I really thank you for joining us today and helping to try to shed some light on a story that many of us are still seeking to understand. Thank you so much. Thank you. James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Sterling, with you here on WABC, coming back again. Anything you want to comment on, I'm going to talk a little bit about Elon Musk and what's going on with this poison pill business. But whatever's on your mind, feel free. 800-848-WABC. Remember, Cats at Night up next. We're coming back right after this. 